In this session, I want to talk about the temple and uh, what, uh, how the temple, the role that the temple plays in the history that's recorded in Kings. But let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is the living temple, who is greater than the temple. And we thank you that we can uh, present ourselves to you and present our petitions to you in his name and through him. And as we pray toward that temple, that you, Father, hear us and you answer. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us a praying people. We pray that we would be faithful in seeking your face and in whatever distress we find ourselves, that we would turn to you in prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The section of Kings that I'll be looking at in this uh, lecture is 1 Kings chapters 6 through 8. I'll look at a couple other passages along the way, but that, that's where we'll concentrate, especially at the beginning. Um, the temple, the construction of the temple occupies those chapters in 1 Kings. It's a large chunk of the Solomon narrative, and it's right at the center of the Solomon narrative. Uh, Solomon's uh, reign is recounted in chapters 3 through 11 of 1 Kings. And these chapters are right at the center of that. They're the structural center of the account and they occupy uh, the, uh, the largest section really. This is, this is the, if you could if you put it this way, this is the most dramatic display of Solomon's wisdom is his, uh, his oversight of the temple construction. Uh, the temple of course is um, a, uh, a new stage of Israel sanctuary. It's uh, building on the original institutions of the tabernacle. Uh, and it's uh, similar to the tabernacle in many ways. It's the dwelling of God among his people. It's divided up into the three sections. The temple has the same three sections that the tabernacle had. There's a courtyard outside, there's a holy place, and then there's an interior sanctuary, to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is located and where the glory of the Lord is present. Uh, but there are a lot of changes that take place with the construction of the temple that um, I'll just briefly recount. Uh, we, won't, we won't go into the details of this, but uh, uh, they're important for understanding how the temple functions in Israel's life after, after, the, uh, after Solomon's reign. Uh, of course, the, the temple is a permanent structure instead of the, the, the peripatetic tent of uh, the tabernacle. The tabernacle moved through the wilderness with Israel. Uh, eventually, the tabernacle was put in one place. It, it was in Shiloh once Israel entered into the land. Uh, we, we learned that in the book of Joshua. Uh, and a couple hundred years later, um, it's still there. It's still in Shiloh in the early chapters of 1 Samuel. So all through the period of the, of the judges, the rises and falls of different judges, the tabernacle was a, a permanent, had a permanent location. And in fact, in 1 Samuel, it's described as a temple, even though it's not a temple yet. It's not a permanent structure. It's, the, it's still the tent but it had been set in one place for so long that it had begun to function like a permanent uh, structure in one place. But the temple, the temple can't move. Uh, it can be destroyed and its furnishings can be moved as we'll find out, but it doesn't move around. Uh, and it's uh, the Lord's uh, dwelling among his people uh, in the land. Uh, when they get settled, he gets settled. When they move, he moves. Uh, when they're in the land, he's in the land. Eventually when the te temple is destroyed and the Temple furnishings are taken off to Babylon. The Lord moves to Babylon. Ezekiel sees this in his vision. The glory of the Lord 
moving out of his temple to dwell with his people. He goes into exile with them. He shares their, shares their exile. He imposes exile on them as a punishment for their idolatries and sins. And then he goes into exile along with them. Uh, but during the time that, uh, the, of kings, uh, the, the temple is that permanent structure in Jerusalem. It's a good deal larger than the tabernacle, of course. Uh, and it has a number of different items of furniture. Uh, that some of the things that are in the tabernacle are expanded or enhanced in various ways. There's a, there's a labor for washing uh, the priests to wash their hands and to wash sacrifices in the court of the tabernacle. In the temple, that's grown up into a bronze seed that is a, a large bronze basin uh, that's set up on the backs of 12 bulls. It symbolizes the ministry of Israel holding up the Sea of Nations on the backs of, uh, they're, they're like the Atlas people that holds up the firmament on their back. They hold up the nations. They hold up the heavens on their back. Uh, in addition to that bronze seed, there are water basins uh, that are placed onto structures that look like chariots. The, these uh, basin uh, structures probably did not move, they have, but they have, they have wheels on them and they have uh, cherubim uh, figures that are in the in the bronze plates that are on these uh, basins, and then they've got water basins. There are ten of those out in the courtyard, and they they look like uh, they sim symbolize water flowing out of the temple, out toward the nations, out from Jerusalem, out toward the world, uh, and it anticipates the the vision of Ezekiel later on in Ezekiel when he sees water flowing out from the temple, the renewed temple, uh, and flowing out from the inner sanctuary out through the courtyard out into the land and then eventually out to the Dead Sea. Uh, but that's already anticipated in the symbolism of the temple where you have these water basins that are that look like they're on mobile, it look like the basins are mobile and can move out from the temple. At the doorway of the temple, there are two monumental bronze pillars. They're named uh, Yakin and Boaz. And they probably represent the king and the priest as the guardians of the Lord's house. Uh, there are more lampstands in the inside the temple than there were in the tabernacle. There's only one menorah in the uh, in the tabernacle, but there are ten uh, menorahs menorot in the uh, uh, in the temple, and there are ten uh, tables for uh, uh, inside the inside the holy place, inside the most holy place. In addition to the ark, Solomon had two large uh, uh, cherubim constructed that are overshadowing the ark. There's freestanding. Uh, and they're, uh, eight, uh, they're uh, 10 cubits tall, which means 15 feet tall. They have their wings spreading out so that their wings uh, spread out halfway across the, the most holy place. And there are two of them. So they're spreading out over the entirety of the most, the most holy place. Those are new. Uh, one of the important new things is the uh, fact that we have a, a royal palace that's built in the middle of the, uh, in the middle of the, uh, or part of the temple complex, uh, right in the middle of the account of the temple uh, temple construction, at the beginning of First Kings seven, uh, we have this account of Solomon building his own house, finishing it after thirteen years, and it describes several different buildings that he makes as part of his palace complex. Uh, that's the center of the center of the account of Solomon. The the temple. The temple construction, chapter six through eight, is the center of the Solomon narrative in Kings. And the center of the temple narrative is 1 Kings 7, the beginning of 1 Kings 7, which is about Solomon's palace. 
So the the, the central uh, the, the the central act, structurally speaking, in the terms of the literary structure, the central act of Solomon's reign is the construction of his palace in the vicinity of the temple. And Solomon is often is often criticized for that palace. He spent more time building the palace than he did the temple, uh, and he's criticized for building it in the vicinity of the temple. Uh, it's seen sometimes as an act of hubris for him to take that position, for him to make his own house part of the house of Yahweh. Uh, but I think, in, I think actually that's, that's uh, the, the placement of Solomon's palace, both in the literary structure of kings and also in the, um, in the, in the complex of buildings that make up, the, make up the official buildings of Jerusalem. Uh, I think that's making a, a theological statement about the prominence and the importance of the Davidic dynasty. Um, the central promise of the Davidic covenant is that Yahweh will be a father to David's sons. Um, the, the Davidic kings are sons of God, they're sons of Yahweh. Uh, and I think that's represented by the fact that the king has his palace in the vicinity of his father's house. The, pal uh, the temple is the palace of Yahweh, the high king, uh, the, the temple of uh, the, the palace of Yahweh, who is the father of the king of Israel. And then the king, the son, has his his own temple, his own palace complex in the vicinity. And if you look at the details of uh, Solomon's house and the various official buildings that he builds, you'll see that um, there, the, his palace is built and his official buildings are built to resemble the different zones of the temple. There's analogies between the different buildings that he builds and the different parts of the temple. I think it's also highlighting the, the fact that the Davidic kings are charged with the uh, with the task of maintaining the temple. That's one of the most important things that they do. Solomon builds the temple and then turns it over to priests, and the priests are the ones who maintain the day-to-day the -day operations of the temple, the continuous sacrifices and the continuous, uh, 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 the continuous um, incense, the, the regular daily uh, trimming, of the, uh, trimming of the wicks of the lampstand and so on, all those, all those daily operations are in the hands of priests, but the, the kings are responsible for maintaining the physical, the physical house and for ensuring that the priests are doing their jobs. Uh, when, when the priesthood breaks down, the priesthood becomes uh, ineffective, then it's the king who intervenes in order to get the whole system back started up again. The king can't go into the temple and the king can't do the, the priestly activities, but the kings are responsible for maintaining the house. And so that's, I think, part of the message of this um, of the, the physical arrangement of the buildings in Jerusalem. Uh, the king's house is close to the, the Lord's house because the king is responsible for maintaining not only his own palace, but also for maintaining the palace of Yahweh, who's the high king. And that gives us an idea of what, uh, it's a kind of, there's a kind of political theology that's embedded within that. Uh, the whole uh, orientation of the Davidic dynasty is toward uh, honoring the, the, the true king of Israel, who is the Lord. Even though the Lord has uh, agreed to give Israel a king, uh, even though the Davidic dynasty is, uh, is the prince in, uh, uh, next to the Lord, who is the father of the prince, uh, still the orientation of the king is to, uh, is to honor the Lord and to maintain his kingdom and to maintain his palace. The, the, the operation of the temple can, can feel kind of alien to us uh, Kings doesn't include a lot of details about the sacrificial system. That's all 
back in Leviticus and uh, the, the sacrifices that are done in the temple are the same sacrifices that were done at the tabernacle. Uh, and those are referred to briefly in the book of Kings. There's not a lot of details about how they're done. If you want to know that, you got to go back to Leviticus. And that, but that all seems kind of alien to us because it's not, it's not the kind of thing we do. We don't have to worry about what kind of animal to offer uh, uh, for a particular kind of sin or how to butcher the animal, what parts of the animal go on an altar, that kind of thing. Um, but I think the temple is actually moving closer to the worship of the new covenant uh, than we realize. And uh, there are two particular things that are introduced and made prominent in the worship of Israel with the building of the temple that um, are uh, features of the new covenant, prominent features of new covenant worship that are, uh, made, I, don't, I wouldn't say that they're introduced for the first time when Solomon builds the temple, but they certainly come into more prominence when Solomon builds the temple. The first of those is music. Uh, so far as we know, there's no musical accompaniment to the worship in the tabernacle. The only worship, the only music that's referred to is the, uh, the use of the, the silver trumpets that are described in Numbers 10. And those trumpets are blown to summon the people to worship. Sometimes they're blown over the sacrifices, uh, but there's no indication that there are other musical instruments there's no indication of singing in the tabernacle. Uh, but once the temple is built, uh, then uh, you have an outburst of song that you still have the animal sacrifices happening in the temple, but they are accompanied now by a sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of song. Uh, and that's particularly laid out in Chronicles. We're not looking at Chronicles, but if you look at uh, First uh, Chronicles uh, 15 to 25, roughly, those chapters in Chronicles, there's a great deal of information about what David did before Solomon even built the temple. David is already organizing the priests and the Levites into a, a choir. Uh, he's organizing uh, a Levitical orchestra. Uh, David writes psalms. We know that of course, from the book of Psalms, but it's uh, told, we're told that in, in uh, Chronicles. He invents musical instruments, and he's the one who's orchestrating and organizing all of the priests and Levites who are going to uh, uh, make up these gigantic choirs and this gigantic orchestra that's going to work, that's going to uh, accompany the sacrificial worship of Israel. So you think about what's happening, for example, on great feast days in Israel. Uh, on great feast days, not just you, you have certain priests that are permanently in residence in Jerusalem. They're they're the ones who maintain the temple. Uh, David sets up a, a rotation of priests coming into Jerusalem each month. There's a there's a group of priests every two weeks rather. There's a group of priests that comes in, and they serve at the temple. And then they go back home. They're priests living all over the land, but there's a, they they serve for a couple of weeks out of the year in the in the temple precincts. Uh, but on feast days. During the week, week of the Feast of Booths, for example, the priests come from all over the land. They descend on Jerusalem, and they're all there because all these pilgrims are going to come, and they're going to, they're going to worship for a week, and you have to have all these priests there in order to maintain all the sacrifices. But now, in, with, the, with the building of the temple, you don't, have, you don't simply have all those priests coming in to help with the sacrifices. You have all these priests and Levites coming in, bringing their musical instruments, and they're, and they're going to be um, accompanying the sacrifices with the sacrifice of praise 
and song and musical musical worship. <coughs> As I said, that's all new with the temple. Uh, that's uh, we, the, sacri the sacrifice of praise is a uh, uh, is a New Testament phrase, but it's that sacrifice of praise is already beginning with uh, David and with Solomon's temple. <coughs> Pardon me. <clears throat> so that's one prominent feature. If, you, if we were looking at Chronicles, we would spend a good bit of time looking at that. But uh, in Kings, we have a similar phenomenon. Even though, the, even though the sacrifices continue in the worship of Israel, uh, the thing that's prominent in the temple dedication ceremony and the building of the temple is the, uh, is the role of prayer. When, uh, if you go back to you go back to Leviticus nine, eight, nine, and ten, you see the dedication ceremony for the tabernacle, which includes the ordination of the priests, and the sanctification of the tabernacle. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, been described at the end of Exodus, but it's uh, laid out in more detail in in Leviticus. And that involves a series of sacrifices, various uh, 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 initiation rites for the priests. They have to be washed. They have to be anointed. There's a series of sacrifices that are done. They have to have blood put on their earlobes and their thumbs and their big toes. All of that has to. All of that is with sacrifice. There's no indication at all in Leviticus that anybody prayed during the ordination of the priests or the dedication of the tabernacle. But when we get to when we get to Kings and Chronicles too, the dedication ceremony for the temple is almost entirely about Solomon's prayer. There's a, a huge number of sacrifices that are offered. Uh, the Lord's fire breaks out <clears throat> again to burn up those sacrifices. The Lord's glory descends and the Lord takes his throne above the wings of the cherubim inside the most holy place. That all happens. But the bulk of the dedication ceremony is a long prayer of Solomon. That's in 1 Kings 8. And you have the Second Kings, Second Chronicles six is the parallel passage in Chronicles, but in both in both books you have prayer as the central theme of the dedication ceremony, and it's not just that the temple is dedicated by prayer as well as by sacrifice, but that the prayer is about prayer. Solomon's prayer in First Kings eight is all about it's it's a it's a long series of requests that the Lord would listen to future prayer. Uh, and uh, I, I want to read a, a, a couple of passages. You know this, you probably know this passage already, but let me read a couple of passages and, and get the flavor of what he's doing. Uh, he gives a series of petitions. He, uh, uh, Solomon uh, imagines a series of disasters that could, that could take over Judah. Uh, Israel, the United, the, the kingdom is still united at this point. The, the, these are disasters that Israel could face, and in each case, he asks the Lord to respond to the prayers of the people when they turn to him in those times of disaster and catastrophe. So, for example, in First Kings eight, beginning in verse twenty-seven, uh, the first part of this is still part of the introduction, uh, the introduction of praise. Uh, will God indeed dwell in the earth, Solomon asks. The old heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain thee, how much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant, that is, 
have regard to the prayer of the king. The king is an, uh, an intercessor. Priests are intercessors. Prophets are intercessors. But the king is also one. Have, uh, have regard to the prayer of thy servant, the king, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and to the prayer which thy servant offers before thee today, that thine eyes might be open to this house night and day, that the place which thou hast said, my name shall be there, to listen to the prayer which thy servant shall pray to this place, and listen to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, which they pray toward this place, hear thou in heaven in thy dwelling place, hear and forgive. A couple of things I want to highlight in that before I look at a couple other sections of this prayer. One is the, the interesting, the interesting uh, uh, um, combination of uh, hearing and sight. Uh, when, I, when we pray toward this house, Lord, listen. Lord, hear. Let your eyes be on this house so that you can hear. And later on, the Lord is going to promise that his eyes and his heart are going to be in the house, directed toward the house, so that when Israel prays toward the house, he will see and he will hear. So hearing, uh, interestingly, hearing in, in a lot of part, many parts of the Old Testament, hearing has to do with obedience. Servants hear. If you become a, a permanent slave in somebody's house, you have your, uh, your right ear bored. Is a, a, put an awl through your right ear. Uh, and that is a, uh, is a symbol of the opening of your ear to the voice of your master. You're going to have a permanent master and your ear is going to be open to his voice and his voice alone because he's now your, he's now your rule. He's your Lord. Well, Solomon wants the Lord to have his ears open. Almost, almost as if he's treating the Lord as being at the beck and call of Israel. And the Lord promises to do that. <laughs> Listen to us, Solomon says. Hear us, be our servant, as it were. And the Lord says, sure, I'll do that. I'll be your servant. Now, the Lord's eyes are, uh, we know from Psalm 11 and other places, the Lord's eyes are discerning eyes. And when, he, when he sees, he discerns and he judges. The Lord's eyes are in every place to, uh, to discern the hearts of men. He can, he can see into our hearts. And he can just see, see through the, the fog of uh, of. Uh, uh, of our excuses and of of, uh, of the confusions of human life, and he can discern what's really going on. The eyes are organs of judgment. Solomon is asking that uh, when Israel, when the king and Israel prays toward the house, the Lord would hear, that he would put himself at the disposal of Israel, and that his eyes would be toward the house so he could discern, and he could judge and pass judgment in their favor. Um. So the, the prayers are directed toward the house, but the house is kind of a, an, an exchange. It's the, the prayers are directed to the house, but the house is a mediator that carries those prayers to the God who is in heaven. That's what, that's what um, uh, Solomon goes on to say, verse 31. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath, and he comes and takes an oath before thine altar in this house, then hear thou in heaven and act and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked by bringing his way on his own head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. So there the prayer is directed toward the house. In fact, the prayer is, an oath is made in the house. And the Lord, who is the Lord of heaven, who is even beyond heaven, not even the heaven of heavens can contain him. He's beyond 
he is beyond even uh, being, being uh, confined to the heaven of heavens. But he has promised that though in heaven, he's going to be attentive to what happens in the house and to prayers directed toward the house. And he will hear in heaven, he will act, his eyes will be there so he can discern and judge, his ears will be open to the prayers that are, that are uh, prayed toward the house, and he will respond. He'll put himself at the disposal of Israel. Verses 33 and 34, when thy people are defeated before an enemy, because they've sinned against thee, if they turn to thee and confess thy name and pray and make supplication to thee in this house, then hear thou in heaven, forgive the sin of thy people, and bring them back to the land which, from, uh, uh, which thou didst give to their fathers. So in military disasters, hear, hear our prayers, hear our cries, and give us victory. Solomon is praying that the house of God would become a house of prayer. The prayer is about future prayer, and in chapter, the following chapter, the Lord promises that that's what the house will be. The house will be a house of prayer. He will make his eyes be there. He will make his heart be there. His ears will be attentive to what happens in the house, to prayers that are directed toward the house, uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and he'll respond. But it's not just a prayer for Israel, a house for Israel. It's a house of prayer for all nations. Okay, that's, that's a phrase that comes up in Isaiah. Uh, Jesus quotes that when he's condemning the temple in his, uh, the Herod's temple in his own time. Uh, this shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. But that's already implied in Solomon's prayer. It's a house of prayer, but it's a house of prayer for foreigners too. Look at verse 41. Concerning the foreigner who is not of thy people Israel, when he comes from a far country for thy name's sake, for they will hear of thy great name and thy mighty hand and of thine outstretched arm, okay? Israel is an evangelistic nation. They're going, people are going to hear, and they're going to come to Israel. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and do according to all which the foreigner calls to thee, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know thy name, to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, and that they may know that this house which I have built is called by thy name. Now, the house is a house of prayer, not just for Israel, but it's a house of prayer for the nations. And it's designed to be that from the very beginning. It's, it's, uh, it's, that's not something that comes in the New Testament. It's not invented by Jesus. It's not invented by Isaiah. As soon as the temple is dedicated, it's dedicated as a house of prayer. Uh, and it's, an ex as I said, an exchange point where earthly prayers come to the house and uh, are directed to, um, directed to heaven. You think of the old movies where, you know, they've got the, the, the uh, usually a woman uh, at a switchboard and she gets a call and she plugs in, she connects the two people plugs them in so that they can talk to each other. That's what the temple is. It, it's a switchboard. Uh, when you pray toward the house, then uh, the temple directs those, uh, those prayers toward the God of heaven. And the things that Solomon brings up here are all things that Israel and Judah will face over the course of the history of uh, kings. Uh, defeat before enemies. That's one of the things he's, he prays for. If we're defeated before our enemies, if our enemies are bearing down on us and we turn toward your house, hear us. Uh, be, it, be, it, be, at our, uh, be at our disposal. Answer us. Deliver us. Save us. Defeat our enemies. And the Lord says, yeah, I'll do that. Uh, when there's a drought, and Israel does have a drought. Uh, the northern kingdom has a long drought during the, during the reign of, uh, during the reign of uh, Ahab. Brought, uh, one that's predicted by 
Elijah. Uh, and, and according to James, it's because of Elijah's prayers that, uh, that there's a, a drought in the Northern Kingdom. When there's drought, Solomon says, and your people turn toward this house, then here in heaven and give us rain. When there's a famine or when invaders come and set siege to our cities or when there are plagues that break out, then hear us. And that happens. Okay? That happens in the Northern Kingdom. It happens in the Southern Kingdom. Invaders come in. There are plagues that break out. There are sieges that occur. And, uh, and uh, the temple is there. And the Lord says, I'll be there. Um, when they're sent out to battle, uh, uh, Solomon prays that the Lord would go with them in battle. When they're in exile, Solomon prays that when they pray from a far country, that the Lord would still hear them in his house from that far country. What, whatever kind of trial Israel is going through, the temple is there as a place of prayer, as a house of prayer, and the Lord has promised that he will respond. Now, the story of the temple in, uh, in the book of Kings is a story of neglect. We know it's a story of neglect because the, 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 the temple often falls into disrepair. The kings don't maintain the physical form of the temple uh, as they are supposed to. Uh, they don't make sure that the priests are doing the work of the temple as they're supposed to do. In fact, sometimes the kings promote uh, uh, idolatrous worship rather than the worship of the true God. But it's not just, it's not just a story of neglect. Okay? Uh, the kings of Judah are the great plunderers of the temple. Uh, Shishak the Egyptian comes in the, in the time of Rehoboam and plunders the temple. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, will plunder the temple at the end of Kings. You've got Gentiles and foreigners who come in and invade and take gold and silver from the temple. But they're nothing that's nothing compared to the number of times that Judah's own kings, the Davidic kings, plunder the temple. So you've got uh, Asa, for example, in 1 Kings 15. The Arameans, uh, well, actually, it's Baasha of Israel who's threatening Asa. Baasha is coming and, and, uh, from the northern kingdom, uh, and Asa is vulnerable to the northern kingdom. What does he do? Well, if he's aware of, of Solomon's prayer, you have an enemy, he's invading, turn to the house, seek the Lord's face, he's promised to hear and forgive. Asa does go to the house of God, he goes to the temple, but he doesn't pray. <laughs> Uh, instead, he takes gold and silver from the temple. He gives gold and silver to the Arameans, that is the Syrians, so that he pays the Syrians to attack the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, uh, so you know Israel and Judah are brother brother king; they're brothers to each other. But now Judah, the king of Judah, Asa is, and Asa is a pretty good king. I mean, he's generally a good king. But he's paying off Gentiles to attack Israel, to attack the other, the, other kingdom of, the other kingdom of his own people, so that Beasha will get distracted. Beasha won't be able to keep attacking Asa. He'll have to go and defend himself against the uh, uh, Arameans. He'll, he'll rush off to do that, and that will relieve Asa. Now, that, 
that, that backfires badly. I mean, that's, uh, he gives a, a, a huge amount of gold and silver to the Arameans and the Arameans become a, a constant plague against both the Northern and Southern kingdom. The Syrians are constantly um, invading and, and uh, uh, taking territory away from, especially from the Northern kingdom. And it's, it's because Asa supplied them. Asa, Asa made them, uh, and, and uh, made them a, a rival. So he could have gone to the temple and prayed, deliver me from Biasha. He doesn't. He goes to the temple and, and plunders it and sends off the gold and silver to, uh, um, uh, to, uh, uh, to the Arameans. Jehoash of Judah does the same in the 2 Kings 12. <clears throat> That's Joash. He pays off Haziel of Aram, um, who's invading. Ahaz. Ahaz, Ahaz is facing Tiglath by Leser, the Assyrian king. What does Ahaz do? Ahaz is the worst of the northern, the worst of the southern, one of the worst of the southern kings, um, almost as bad as Manasseh. Uh, and Ahaz, instead of praying toward the house, he takes gold and silver from the house and bribes Tiglath by Leser to leave. Okay, that's that's not a real effective strategy, you know, because once Tiglath by Leser has spent all that gold and silver, he might he might come back. Because he'll think, well, there's must be more gold and silver inside the temple. You can, there's more treasury. Um, even Hezekiah does it. Hezekiah pays off the Babylonians in order to, as, as a kind of bribe. Uh, all the way through kings, I mean, you have to imagine all these things taking place in the southern kingdom, all these kings coming in the Davidic line. The temple is there the entire time. The Lord has promised to hear prayers that are directed toward the temple and answer in every distress that Judah faces. And there isn't a single king who prays in the temple until, until Hezekiah. And he's the only one who ever does. He's the only king in the whole history of kings who uses the temple the way the temple is supposed to be used, as a house of prayer. And this is the account of, uh, I mentioned in, in the earlier lecture that uh, after, after the Assyrians have conquered Samaria, the Northern Kingdom, the capital of the Northern Kingdom, they invade the Southern Kingdom. They besiege Jerusalem. This is Sennacherib. Um, he's uh, the Sennacherib's siege of Jerusalem. Uh, and uh, uh, Hezekiah gets a letter and he takes it and spreads it out before the Lord in the temple. This is the only time we see a king going to the temple to pray. And what happens is pretty dramatic. This, this works. <laughs> uh, when a king goes into the temple and uses the temple as it's supposed to be used as a house of prayer, the Lord acts dramatically and, uh, and answers. Uh, the Lord sends his angel, as I mentioned in the previous lecture, and kills 185,000 Assyrians and sends Sennacherib back home. That's, do you think, you, you read that and you think, all, what, what might have happened? What, what the history of Judah might have been if Asa had gone into the house of God instead, instead of going into the house of God to plunder it, if he had gone into prey, or Ahaz, or Joash, or Hezekiah in relation to the Babylonians, uh, or even the kings of the north. You know, when there's when there's a when there's a plague, or when there's an invader, and there's a king in the north. If he would have prayed toward the house, 
the Lord would have answered. And nobody uses it. Nobody, nobody uses the temple the way it's supposed to be used. Uh, it's there the whole time. Instead, they turn to all kinds of other, they turn to the house for plunder, they turn to the house for gold and silver, and they turn uh, to high places. Uh, as I mentioned on your notes, I have some references to the high places. That's the sin of the southern kingdom, that they, they continue to worship at high places. The sin of the northern kingdom, the permanent sin of the northern kingdom, is the sin of uh, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is worship of golden calves. Uh, he, uh, Jeroboam institutes that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that cult in the northern kingdom as soon as the northern kingdom is set up. Uh, in the southern kingdom, you have high places, which are probably not uh, 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 shrines dedicated to idols, but are probably uh, uh, temples, small temples that are dedicated. High places means just means that they're on hills. They're high places, uh, shrines that are dedicated to Yahweh. Uh, they could be. They, uh, I, I suspect they frequently were. But they're not supposed to exist because there's only supposed to be one place where Israel goes to worship, and that's the temple. Deuteronomy 12 specifies this. When the Lord brings Israel into the land and gives them rest from their enemies, he's going to choose one place. He's going to put his name in that one place, and that's the place where they bring all of their sacrifices. That's the place where they go to eat, drink, and rejoice before the Lord. And instead, what they do is set up these competitive shrines uh, all around the land, and uh, that's that's the continuous sin. And the kings that are the best kings are the kings who get rid of the high places. The kings who are good but not the best uh, are uh, they they restore the temple, they obey the Lord, but they don't get rid of the high places. That's the recurring failure of the kings of Judah. So um, they they have this they they have the nuclear option as it were available to them the whole time. The temple is there. And they're going off all, to all these places that the Lord is not, the Lord is not promised to, he's not promised to be there. He's not promised to have his eyes and his heart in those shrines uh, on the high places. He's promised to have it at Jerusalem in the temple. Um, this is a, I think it gives us another insight, <coughs> excuse me, into the, into the theological history that Kings is showing us. And it's, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, what Kings is showing us is that uh, many, uh, many of Judah's failures and distresses are the result of Judah's prayerlessness. Um, that prayerlessness um, doesn't, doesn't come up in a kind of um, materialist or secular view of history. Uh, even, even if you're a believer and you're trying to write a history of, let's say, um, Victorian Britain, you might be aware of prayer movements, uh, prayer movements that spawned missionary movements, that kind of thing. But there's no way to know all of the prayers that were offered in that period. And there's no way to know whose prayers were effective. <laughs> um, you know, what, was, what accounted for the 
uh, great successes, and I think there are genuine great successes of Victorian England, of, of, the, uh, of the various um, evangelical movements of Victorian England. Uh, maybe it was some completely forgotten widow <laughs> uh, somewhere up north praying faithfully that the Lord would bring revival. And she prayed toward the new temple in the name of Jesus. And the Lord promises to hear when we pray in his name. And he responded. The drivers of history are not always the things that are evident on the, on, in the records of history. I mean, part of the, part of the glory of, of, the, uh, of scripture, part of the insight of scripture is that we are, we have the, uh, we're given these vignettes of people who pray and redirect the course of history because of their prayers. Uh, Moses on the mountain who defends Israel when the Lord is ready to wipe them out and start all over. And Moses intercedes. Uh, Hannah. Hannah who prays for a son and gets a son who is the last and greatest of the judges and becomes the one who makes the transition from the period of the judges to the period of the king. Samuel is a founder of a new phase of Israel's history. And his very existence is an answer to Hannah's prayer. Hezekiah's prayer, if, if, uh, if we had, didn't have it recorded in scripture, then we wouldn't know that this great and miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem is the, is the Lord's response to prayer. Uh, the one of the key drivers of history is the prayers of the people of God. And one of the, one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves in, the current, in, our, in our current circumstances is whether we're more like the kings of Judah, we're looking to try to solve our problems in all kinds of other ways, rather than turning toward the temple in prayer or whether we're like Hezekiah, who's going to the temple and seeking relief from our distresses. If we want, if we want to respond rightly to our current circumstances, then uh, our churches need to be houses of prayer. Uh, and they need to be places where in whatever distress we're in, our first response is to seek the Lord where he's promised to be, which is in Jesus. <laughs> and we can pray in his name and he's promised to answer. Thanks. Peter, one of the things you sadly can't see or hear, I expect, is the sort of hmm and yeah, and wow, those sorts of dynamics, which admittedly most of us are charismatics, and so you get a lot of that anyway, but it's really good. Like, you, yeah, I hope you're getting some sense of the enjoyment of the material and, and how provocative and stimulating it is. Um, okay, let's take uh, questions and do you, do you want to, should we start with what you guys were talking about before? Okay, Marlon. Cheers, Peter. Um, very insightful. Just a quick question, actually, on the subject of God's sovereignty and how we're told to pray. Um, just wondering how does and what role does prayer affect, uh, play in, in affecting God's will? And are we, supposed, are we supposed to see it in terms of God's will being both permissible and a predeterminant component to it? 
uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, obviously a huge, a huge question. Um, I, I mean, a, a simple way to say it is that I, I do believe that God has scripted history, um, but that part of the script is our prayers. That script doesn't mean that we're not free uh, because God has scripted us to be free. Uh, and uh, and uh, things depend, uh, the, the course of things does depend on our prayers. God is truly interactive with his world. That's part of the script. Uh, God is truly interactive with his world. He responds to our uh, prayers and petitions. And we, uh, uh, he does act in response to them. Uh, that's, that's not pretense. Um, I mean, uh, one, again, I'm, 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 I'm speaking in terms of the analogy of a script, but I think one of the, this, that's a helpful way to think about it. If reality is what God has scripted it to be, part of the, part of the what he's scripted is that he's interactive with our prayers and he responds to them. So it's real because it's scripted. I just want to say, um, I really um, love the whole temple analogy, and it got me also thinking about the fact that, you know, Jesus being that temple takes on extra meaning, um, and the whole switchboard and all of that. So thank you very much for that. Um, I also wanted to ask about the, um, when you talked about the priesthood and kingship um, and the interaction, you didn't quite use this phrase, but it made me think of sort of them acting like checks and balances, almost like legislative and executive. And I was wondering if that would be an accurate way. Is that sort of how you think about it? Or is that, am I misreading that? And if that is, then does that have any implications for us today? Mm. So, so yeah. <laughs> does one and two kings justify America? Would be another way of framing <laughs> that question. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna answer that question, Andrew. Um, the uh, that's a really good question. I'd, I'd want to add um, prophets into the mix, and I'll talk about prophets uh, after lunch. But um, but I think that that's one dimension of king and priest. I wouldn't want to say that that's all that's going on in the relationship between them. I think it's I think it's helpful to think about priest, king, and prophet uh, in terms of their relationship to the house, that is, to the temple. Uh, prophets are the one who receive the pattern or the blueprints, as it were, for the temple. They're the, they're the sacred architects. And then um, Moses, Moses receives the pattern for the tabernacle on the mountain. Um, he doesn't actually build it. He, he, gives the, he gives the instructions over to um, Bezalel and Aholiab, who are spirit-filled craftsmen. Bezalel is from the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe. Uh, he's, a, he's a royal figure who actually builds the house, builds the tent. And then the priests are the ones who main, who do the do the work of the work of the house. Prophets prophets are the sacred architects. Kings are the builders of sanctuaries, and the prophets and priests are the ones who maintain the sanctuaries. So that's a way of one just a general way of organizing our thoughts about those different offices. But um, in terms of king and priest, yeah, there's definitely a kind of check and balance. Um, the king is uh, is holds the priests accountable. We see that a number of times in, in, in Kings uh, where um, Joash, Josiah both lead kind of revivals of the temple and both of them are, uh, are giving instructions to priests to do what the law requires them to do. At the same time, we see the opposite 
because the king the king is limited in what he's allowed to do in the temple and this comes out this is comes out most dramatically in in chronicles with the story of Uzziah who tries to go into the temple uh, and offer incense he's, he's king Uzziah uh, he's not supposed to be in the temple at all much less offering incense and the and the priests stop, stop him from doing that uh, and um, he he's insists on on going ahead with the incense and the Lord strikes him with leprosy so he tried to he tried to uh, gain access that he wasn't uh, that that he wasn't allowed to have, and as a result, he's excluded as a leper for the rest of his life. And even in his death, he's not buried with the king. So there's this there's this kind of he, he comes too near and he's cast far out. Um, so there's a kind of kind of check from the priests on 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 royal uh, action. But also, if you think if you put the prophets into the mix, then part of part of the role of prophets prophets become pretty become prominent during the monarchy and part of the role of prophets is to hold kings accountable uh, so uh, that's definitely a check so I, I think priests and kings kind of operate in different but overlapping zones uh, and they have they do have an overlap kings have a certain kind of liturgical role uh, priests have a certain kind of political role you have this this overlap uh, but they do operate in different in, in different zones, and those are uh, those they do function as kind of a check and balance. Uh, that's um, I will kind of answer your question, Andrew. That's that's not really an American system because it um, at least in 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 the way modern America works, at least our at least the way our Supreme Court says we work. Uh, I think there's a lot more overlap than in reality than the Supreme Court says we have. But, um, uh, it, you, in, in Israel, you don't have that. You don't have a wall of separation between priestly and kingly action. There are zones of operation. There are things that kings do that priests can't do and vice versa. But uh, there's a lot of overlap and interaction between the two. Hi, Peter. Thanks very much uh, so far. One of the things I'm really uh, enjoying and hearing you kind of bring out is the way that the there's kind of an um, uh, linking and uh, intertwining of the various covenants that shape Israel, you know, the, the Deuteronomic promises and stuff with the king and and how all the different um, covenants that form Israel are kind of been drawn into the narrative in one and two kings. One of the things I was thinking of really as we were talking was I think of uh, like Michael Horton's thesis that um, the Mosaic covenant, for instance, is, is to be taken out, uh, not gene uh, genealogically or organically connected to the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant. But one of the things I was wondering as you were talking is, do you think that the, the narrative of one or two kings should, um, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, we think about the, the connection between the various covenants much more systematically often. Do you think the narrative of one or two kings should, should force us to think much more organically about the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic covenants and how they function together? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way to put it. I do think that then um, it, it's it's hard to uh, come up with with neat and clean distinctions between the different covenant orders uh, when you're looking at them in the way that in the way they develop. I think there are, there really are different phases of the covenant, um, but I don't think I don't I don't think that they're sharply separated from each other. And the narrative kind of gives us that that. Uh, that interconnection. Yeah. Uh, one one thing. I, one one example that uh, I think is uh, 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 of the connection. 
this, this goes back to Samuel and the Davidic covenant that, as it's laid out in Samuel. Uh, I mentioned that one of the key things in the Davidic covenant is that the king, be, the king is designated as the son of Yahweh. Your son, I will, uh, your son will be my son, uh, he tells David. Uh, so Solomon is both son of David and son of Yahweh. And I think that applies not just to Solomon, but to the, to the kings in the Davidic line generally. But what, the, what that's doing, if you look at that in terms of the, the flow of the story in the Old Testament, what that's doing is taking a designation that, uh, that originally applied to the nation, that is sonship, Israel is my son, that's the Exodus, uh, that's, that's the Mosaic designation, uh, Exodus 4. Israel is my son. That's the premise for the premise for the Lord uh, taking Israel out of Egypt. Israel is my son, and Pharaoh has enslaved Israel. So Yahweh is coming to, to Pharaoh, and he's going to take Pharaoh's son, uh, son for son, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But uh, that's a corporate sonship. What you have in the Davidic in the Davidic covenant is that corporate identity of Israel as son, uh, focused down and narrowed onto the king. And so now the king is the one whose actions, whose faithfulness, whose unfaithfulness is going to be representative and determinative for the nation because he is kind of an Israel, he's kind of an embodiment of Israel. So that kind of relationship, I think, is important. To, that's, that's crucial for understanding how the, how the Davidic covenant works and also how the Davidic covenant uh, prepares the way for the coming of Christ because Jesus, of course, is... Israel in person, but he's Israel in person in the same way that all the other Davidic, all the Davidic kings were Israel in person. That Jesus is coming into that, assuming that role that's already been uh, uh, already been laid out by the Davidic covenant. So I think that that's that's just one example of how it's. I think it's it's important not to not to systematize too strongly and to recognize that there's a kind of uh, that, that there's a, there's a, there's a, a movement and a flow and, and getting and looking at it in a narrative terms I think helps us to see that. One of the uh, things you said that got a big ooh and are at the end of uh, your your um, what you shared just now was uh, this idea: Will we be those who um, turn to the temple in the same way um, uh, that, that Hezekiah did, or will we be those who plunder the the temple? And I just wonder if you could expand on that idea. Um, you know, from the perspective of the New Testament, we turn to the temple in, uh, in that we pray um, uh, in the name of Christ. But I just wondered if you could expand on what it might look like from a New Testament perspective to, to plunder the temple. Um, yeah. Uh, I have to admit that there was, there, was, there was a good bit of rhetoric in that way of putting it. <laughs> but I, I, can think of, I can think of specific uh, examples of uh, what I guess the, the one way to generalize from that is to say, uh, the, the kings who are buying off, it's, it's a protection racket, right? Uh, they're, they're buying protection. Um, they're paying off the thugs so the thugs leave them alone. And churches can do that in various ways. We can try to uh, massage our positions so that the thugs who want to come down on uh, you know, traditional sexual morality, those thugs will leave us alone. And we kind of, we kind of adjust so that we kind of slip by the, the, the gatekeepers. Uh, that's, that's the kind of practical thing I was thinking of, or, or thinking, um, 
you know, this is a, 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 more of a US uh, kind of uh, application, but I think of the, the way that um, uh, over the last 40 years or so, uh, conservative evangelicals have engaged in, uh, uh, in politics. And I, I, I know that I know the situation more complicated than this. I know that a lot of it, that a lot of people have been devoted to prayer for the state of America. I don't want to diminish that. But what came to prominence is a kind of political lobbying effort, you know. Um, and that became the, the, the center of the religious rights efforts to try to overcome abortion, for example, uh, is, um, uh, is um, making use of the uh, of media of uh, political negotiations, you know, uh, protests, you're, you're making use of the tools of, uh, of modern politics. I think there's a place for all that. But uh, if that, that, that could easily become the focus of our hope you know we want we want our culture to be transformed and become more honoring to jesus <laughs> we want jesus acknowledged as king um but that's not going to happen that at least the main tools for that making that happen are not the tools of worldly politics and that would be that's that would be an example of what i'm thinking of you're, you're that's what the kings are doing they're playing they're playing the political game they're using the the resources that they have in order to buy protection and to get relief rather than turning to the Lord. Uh, and I think that um, um, we, we can do that in, in various analogous, analogous kind of ways.